0: Uh, you know the kind of cough that, that we're talking about here it's one of those types of coughs it's it's one of those coughs that's so painful that you, you can't even have a full conversation with somebody because within one or two minutes you're just you're, you're rendered unable to, to keep breathing uh in order to keep talking and you know you you hope and hope that it gets better, that it goes away with time, and you do what you know how to do to treat it, but it just continues getting worse and worse. It's not going away. It's getting worse by the day. And so finally, if you're like me, I don't like going to the doctor. I was just telling Bruce before the service, I've got to be pretty miserable before I go to see a doctor. And so finally, you go to see a doctor. And so the doctor runs all these tests, runs a battery of tests, and he sees that the results are not good. Your cough is not just a common cold. It's not uh, even the flu. It's lung cancer. Bad news. And at this point, the doctor has two options. The first option is he could tell you. He could tell you what's going on. He could uh, offer that heartbreaking, earth-shattering news to you. Or, option number two, he could write a prescription for some really strong cough syrup and assure you that you'll be feeling better soon. But the doctor chooses the second option. Hopefully you're all disgusted with that. And so you get your prescription filled on the way home. And sure enough, man, you're, you're breathing just fine within no time. You're sleeping better at night. You're able to have those conversations. You feel normal again for the most part. For all you know, the cough syrup has fixed the problem as long as you stay on it, at least for now. Things seem to be resolved. But while you're not suffering from any of the symptoms of lung cancer any longer, The disease is still inside of you. And as time goes on, the disease eats up more and more of your body. It's getting worse and worse as it grows inside of you. And the problem with this story, the problem here is that coughing wasn't really the problem. Coughing felt like a problem, but it wasn't really the problem. There was a deeper issue, and coughing was just a symptom of this deeper issue. And see, as long as the issue at the root of the symptoms isn't dealt with, it won't go away. It just continues to get worse. It does not improve. It gets worse and worse and worse. Now, you and I probably don't have this same issue. Uh, Lord forbid that any of us ever get that, that same uh, disease, the underlying issue. Instead, we experience things like hurt, stress, lust, deceit, anxiety, bitterness, confusion, addiction, uh, temptation to spend more than we can afford. And we, we just kind of struggle with all these things and just like the cough it's so easy to think that these are the, the issues that we're, we're struggling with and not to look beyond that and so we we self-medicate to an extent with things like self-help books maybe even with with prayer and sometimes we even just try to pretend you know th- there's nothing wrong there's nothing wrong it's just, this is normal stuff but what if these aren't really the issues that are underlying the symptoms what if these aren't really the issues that we're wrestling with? What if they're just symptoms and we're missing the issue? We're missing the diagnosis completely by not going to the root that's behind the symptoms. Martin Luther was one of the first people to address uh, the underlying issue, uh, really to flesh it out and write a lot about it. He, he noted that there was something of an order in which the Ten Commandments were given. And uh, he noted uh, in his writings that we can't violate Numbers 2 through 10 unless we violate Number 1. So every time we sin, we violate the First Commandment. The First Commandment from Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 is, You shall have no other gods before me. Seems like a pretty simple command. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the issue that lies at the heart, at the root of every sin that you or I commit. This is what we refer to as idolatry. Now, it's easy for us, when we, when we read this, this first commandment, it, it's easy for us to think, okay, this is something of a, of a hierarchy. And, uh, you know, um, as if everything is cool. As long as God is, you know, um, at the top of our proverbial totem poles, you know, everything's fine. That's, that's what we think it says. We read it and we think, hey, okay, you know, God is in first place in my life, sure, okay, so everything's cool. But the Hebrew word for before doesn't mean uh, prior to. It doesn't, it's not a chronological term. Instead, it means in front of me or in my presence and so a better, more literal translation of this word would be, uh, would be in my presence. And so a more literal translation of this command is you shall have no other gods in my presence. You shall have no other gods in my presence. And it's really easy for us to just assume... That this issue is obsolete. I mean, by default, you know, we don't we don't think that we're serving other gods. Uh, this command was given to you know this group of people who had just come out of Egypt, where they made gods out of gold and silver and wood and, you know, anything else that could be built, glued, or, or molded together, and they worship those types of things. Those were the gods that, uh, that it's easy for us to think they, that he's talking about here, but you know, and you guys probably don't b- uh, bow down to any statues or, uh, or carved images, uh, and there's a pretty good chance that you, you probably don't know anybody else who does either. I do, but I'll leave that for another time. So we might wonder how this is supposed to be relevant in our lives and culture. How how the first commandment relates to our culture today. Because it just seems, it sounds so primitive. Uh, We might be tempted to feel like we're beyond such a thing as a society. But friends, the issue here is not irrelevant or obsolete by any means. In fact, the Bible contains more than 1,000 warnings against idolatry. One, more than a thousand things uh, dealing with idolatry. And how foolish would we be to think that uh, you know, those thousand plus references are no longer applicable to us today, in our day and age. In fact, it is the number one issue that we are warned against throughout scripture. And the issue of idolatry is actually found in every single book of the Bible. Every single one. Why would God put such an emphasis on it? Because you and I are idolaters. Osganis said this. He said, Idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible and one of the most powerful spiritual and intellectual concepts in the believer's arsenal. Yet, for Christians today, it is one of the least meaningful notions. Idolatry is huge in the Bible, it's dominant in our personal lives, and it's irrelevant in our mistaken estimations. End quote. See, when we examine our lives through this lens, when we put our lives under the microscope and look through this lens, with this understanding of idolatry, here's what we discover. There's a war going on. There's a war going on inside of us. The gods are at war, and their strength is not to be underestimated. They are strong, they are vicious, and they are determined to take our hearts. These gods clash for the thrones of our hearts so a lot is at stake. Everything about us, everything that we do, every relationship that we have, every dream, every hope that we, uh, that we have in our minds depends on which God we give our heart to. The truth is, we don't bow our knees before these other gods. These gods are in our hearts. Ezekiel said this, Ezekiel 14.3, he said, These men have taken their idols into their hearts that's the issue. It's not bowing before a statue or a carved image. It's what's going on in your heart. These are gods that we kneel and bow before in our hearts, and they're revealed with the things that, go- that are going on in our imaginations, with the way that we treat and relate to others, with the traditions that we hold dear, with our checkbooks, with our calendars, with our search engines, with the things we just spend our time on. These are gods that we cry out to and we pray to as we look to something or someone that does not have God's power to give us something that only God has the power and the authority to give. Let me say that again. These gods are are what we cry out to when we are looking for something or someone to give us something that only God has the power and authority to give. The truth that we all must come to terms with is that every single sin that we struggle with, whether it's huge, whether it's small, every sin that we struggle with, nearly every discouragement that we deal with, even the lack of purpose that we're sometimes prone to feel like we're living with, it all boils down to which God are we looking to, to give us what only Jesus can give us. What if I told you that about 99% of the problems that we face in life all boil down to the fact that we've committed, some, uh, committed our hearts to some idol that distracts us from keeping our focus on Jesus. That's what it boils down to 99% of the time. Sure, sometimes you get sick or something and you know, it's out of your control. You know, if you consider that to be a problem, you know, I'd consider that in the 1%. But 99% of the things that we're dealing with, 99% of the discouragements and things that we're upset about in life or, or whatever, it boils down to idolatry. And Moses had a successor named Joshua. And while Moses hadn't been allowed to see the promised land, Joshua uh, was was permitted by God to lead the Hebrew people into the promised land. He was a man who was just incredibly faithful to God. When the odds were stacked against Israel, he didn't care because he had so much faith in God. And so by the time we get to the 24th chapter of the book of Joshua, uh, hopefully you're there if you've got your Bibles with you. Uh, by the time we get to the 24th chapter of Joshua, he's kind of an old man. He's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 110 years old. He's a general in in the army. He's been through a lot of wars. He's fought off tribes of the land who were hostile to the Israelites, and he's seen God do all of these amazing things despite all these circumstances where you know Israel was the underdog. But Joshua doesn't have a whole lot of time left on earth. And he seems to know that. He seems to be keenly aware of that. And so what he does is he gathers all the people of Israel together for what he apparently uh, considered to be a farewell speech. And this is what he tells them in Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. He says, Now, therefore, serve the Lord, fear of the Lord, and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now the first thing that I want us to take note of here as you're looking at this passage is repetition. We're, We're always looking for repetition in the Bible. We see the word serve here in this passage, six times. Six times. Uh, so the reality that we must understand here is that you and I will serve some God. Constantly. At all times. We are constantly serving some God. But notice that as Joshua lays out their options, he doesn't say, um, or, or none of the above. Or you could just choose to worship no God at all. He doesn't say that. Because it's not an option, not an option, is not an option. Uh, there is this war that's going on. Our hearts are both the battlefield and the prize that's at stake. And the question is not, "Will you worship?" or "Or, or do you worship?" or "Are you worshiping?" Those aren't the questions because everybody worships and everybody is constantly worship, worshiping, uh, at least while they're awake. Even atheists, even atheists worship. We all devote our time, money, attention affection and love to something or someone. And those things are hardwired into our nature. We just do it automatically by nature. It's part of our DNA as human beings. Worship is as normal and as natural for us as breathing, as breathing. We, we don't think about it. We don't even have to consciously do it. We are constantly doing it, though. God has wired us that way as a means, I believe, of leading us and directing us into a relationship with Jesus, who alone alone can fill our deepest desires, our deepest needs, our deepest longings. Only Jesus can do those things, and God created us in a way that would lead us into that relationship. But we misdirect our worship, and we do it all the time. Everyone does. So the question is not, do we worship or are we worshiping? The question is, who or what do we worship? Now, see, I'm not really too concerned about any of you guys going home today and um, you know, pulling out a statue and lighting up some incense and chanting or, you know, anything like that. I'm pretty confident you don't, you know, go home and pray to a chunk of wood or anything like that. But the problem in our culture is not primarily physical idols, things that you can see and, and, and touch, uh, maybe even things that you can hear. Uh, that's not the problem here. The thing that concerns me and, and the thing that I know that we all struggle with is what is called internal idolatry. It's not worshiping physical idols. It's worshiping uh, concepts. It's worshiping ideas. It's worshiping goals. It's setting our eyes on anything other than Jesus. And so ultimately, the struggle is against loving something or someone more than we love Jesus. That is the ultimate issue. And so my greatest concern as your pastor, you know, it's not that you'll like me, but I'll be honest with you, that's, that's an idol that I have wrestled with, it's an idol that has tempted me, it's an idol that I have spent uh, sleepless nights wrestling with. My greatest concern is not even that you'll agree with me about everything. My favorite preacher is Paul Washer. If you listen to him, you might think, wow, you know, he has some pretty radical beliefs, he's a five-point Calvinist. I'm not, I'm not a five-point Calvinist, but we disagree on some things, but I love listening to the guy. So my greatest concern is uh, not that you'll uh, like me, not that you'll agree with me, no, my greatest fear as your pastor, is that you would love something or someone more than you love Jesus. And even greater than that, my fear is that you you love something more than Jesus, and you don't even realize it. And even worse than that, my greatest fear is that you love something more than Jesus, and you know it, and you don't care. That is my greatest fear. Those are fears that I have about myself as well. They're fears that have kept me awake through sleepless nights. You know, I love the fact that Joshua, just he's not pulling any punches here. He's not walking on eggshells or being delicate with the people. He gets right to the point. He goes for the jugular, so to speak, demanding that the people make a choice today. Make a choice. The thing is, they're going to make a choice. Whether they want to or not, they, they are making a choice, whether that's consciously and deliberately or not. But Joshua tells them that they can serve the gods that their parents serve, the traditional gods of Egypt, uh, or they could serve uh, the Lord. You know, the, the choice is yours. But you are going to you are going to serve somebody. But notice the uh, the options other than worshiping. Uh, the Lord. Uh, And notice that the Lord is in capital letters. That means uh, we're talking about Yahweh, uh, which is the God of Israel that delivered them from Egypt. Uh, So the options other than worshiping Yahweh, he gives them three other options. Why does he do that? Why does he even give them options? Why, Why doesn't he say, worship the Lord? Worship Yahweh? It's because the people might not even realize that if they choose not to serve Yahweh, they will serve some other god. In fact, it seems apparent that most of them may not have even considered the possibility that they were worshiping a false god other than Yahweh. But what we have to see here is that this is a black and white issue. There is no gray area in this issue of worship. He doesn't tell them that they can choose to worship Yahweh and this God, or that God, or or whatever God. He doesn't give them a, a both and option, because there isn't one. It's impossible to do so. You cannot behold God and sin at the same time. The moment you take your eyes off of one, you choose the other. Every moment, every moment of the day, and that's the direction your heart goes in whatever moment of the day it is. So he and his family, he's, he's made up his mind for his family. They are going to serve and worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And so he gives them three alternative options. Behind door number one, they can serve the old gods from beyond the river, from the place where the Israelites had originally come, from the land where Abraham was found by God. Now, I'm not even sure what those gods uh, might have been, but forget the specific context for a moment, and let's consider the principle that we're getting at here, given the fact that we all have gods who are struggling for our hearts, we all have gods that are struggling for our hearts, is it possible that the gods that your parents struggled with, because they were human, everybody struggles with some god, is it possible that the gods that your parents struggled with have become the same gods that you struggle with? Your parents may not have even intentionally taught you who or what is, is worthy of worship, but those are types of things that are just taught by observation. They're, they're, they're caught better than they are taught. If, if a child sees it, if they're exposed to it in their parents, oh, they learn whether the parent means to teach that or not. And psychology and sociology verify the, the, the incredibly high likelihood of this. It's called the law of exposure. The law of exposure, in a nutshell, the law of exposure states that our actions are determined by our thoughts, and our thoughts are determined by the things that we are exposed to. That's why it's so important to guard your mind, guard your heart and your mind, because whatever we expose ourselves to, it's going to play out in our lives at some point. But let's say, for example, that your dad was, was highly driven in his career. He spent more than 60 hours per week at work. His career was his identity. His career was who he was. You didn't see him a lot, but you figured, you know, eh, that's normal. And so when you grew up, you thought, okay, my identity is in my career. And so you did the same thing. And you ended up seeking your identity in a career rather than in Christ. Will you serve the gods that you grew up watching your parents either serve or struggle with? That's the first question. Behind door number two. Joshua tells them they could serve the gods that they next encountered when they were enslaved in Egypt. Now the Egyptians, in a sense, were kind of similar to the Greeks in that they had more gods than you could probably count in a lifetime. Uh, basically, it was a buffet of gods. Which god do you like the best? You know, pick and choose which ones you want, uh, you want to worship. And so for the 400 years that the Hebrew people spent in slavery in Egypt, you can imagine that the false gods of the culture got absorbed into the Hebrew people's culture. Think about this for just a minute. The Israelites, as a nation, were enslaved to Egypt longer than the United States has been a country. That's a long time. That's a lot of generations. That's plenty of time for the Hebrew people to grow accustomed to the Egyptian gods. Old habits die hard. So do you ever find yourself struggling with Thoughts or, or feelings or tendencies, uh, habits that just, you know, it, before you came to Christ, before, before you were a Christian, you kind of accepted this as the norm and you thought that they were just going to stay in your past. But they didn't. They showed up on your doorstep and they came back. Have, have you ever, let me illustrate it like this Have you ever seen somebody come out of a public restroom with a, a strand of toilet paper stuck to their shoe? Have you ever seen that? Uh, it, you know, and they don't even realize that they're walking around and they've got toilet paper stuck to their shoe. And it's easy for us to do the same thing—not in a physical sense, in a physical sense too. I mean, it could happen to anybody, but in a spiritual sense, we all struggle with the same thing happening to us. Suddenly, we look down and we realize that we're dragging around something that's kind of disgusting—something that you didn't even realize was still with you, something that should have been flushed out of our lives. A long time ago, but it's not. Those habits are coming back. And they're fighting for your heart. And Joshua realizes there's a piece of Egypt stuck to the proverbial shoes of a lot of the Israelites. Old gods don't just go away. Sometimes they continue to actively harass us. Sometimes they'll wait weeks, months, years to drop a sneak attack on us somewhere down the road. they ruled our hearts once, and they are willing to fight to get it back again. And so Joshua's challenge is this. Choose not to serve them anymore. Choose not to serve those gods anymore. Behind door number three, they could serve the local gods, the gods of the people that the Israelites had just conquered in battle by the hand of God. Now these are the gods of the culture. These gods came from the people who had inhabited the land and were defeated, but the gods of the culture stuck around And they would remain with the Israelites through the entire Old Testament. Through the entire Old Testament. The most commonly known uh, god of the culture was uh, Baal or Baal. Uh, What does that mean? What does that word mean? It means lord or master. That was their god. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Lord, master. That should ring a bell. But there were other gods as well. Plenty of other cultural gods. Now, you and I probably don't have much of a struggle with Baal um, or Baal. I, I personally don't. I have no temptation to follow him whatsoever, but we do struggle with the gods of our culture. What are the gods of our culture? Anything that we have at least relatively easy and regular access to, which we value, which we esteem higher than Jesus. Maybe it's money. That's a big one. Maybe it's the most common one. Maybe it's the most powerful one. Maybe it's respect. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's approval from others. Maybe it's status. Maybe it's traditionalism. What about technology? Oh, yeah, it could be technology, too. I mean, uh, especially in a place like the, the Seattle area, technology is a huge God here. How about a tough one? What about your family? What about your family? Jesus said this, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Man, that's harsh. There are some pretty serious conditions for being a Christian. Is Jesus picking on the family? No. No. Jesus, uh, you know, he knows, uh, you know, honor your mother and father. He's not discounting that. He's using, uh, he's using this to make an illustration because family ones, uh, tends to be one of the things that we value above just about anything else in the world. Now, just to, to make a quick clarification before we move on, the word hate doesn't mean to despise. We, we really, in our culture, when we use the word hate, it means you despise someone, like you, you have a poor will toward that person. Uh, but in the Bible, what Jesus is saying is that if you want to be a Christian, you need to love Jesus so much that your affection, Toward even your second most precious possession should be like hatred in comparison to your love for Jesus. In other words, it's not like uh, it, it's not like you know. Okay, Jesus gets the top notch, and, and uh, next notch is my 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 uh, my family, then my my job, uh, and then you know, and then on down the line, he's like, no, I get my own shirt. I get my own shirt. It should look like hatred in comparison. I get my own category for your heart. So that even your family, your second most precious possession, is so far away, there's no competition for your heart. That's what he's saying. And I'll be honest, man, I, I do not like this verse very much. It makes me really uncomfortable, and it stretches me, and it challenges me. I, I, I mean, I love my wife. I, I adore my wife. Uh, and my kids? Yeah, I, I would do anything for my kids, I mean, they're, they're, just, they're precious to me. Uh, but what Jesus is saying here is that I need to love him not just more than my family, but a lot more than I love my family. Anything less, and I run the risk of having turned my family into my God. That's scary, because that means I would disqualify myself from following Jesus. You cannot be my disciple unless this condition exists. And so the truth here is something that stretches me. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with it. it. It makes me really search myself. But it's truth. It's truth. It, it, Jesus said it. it. I mean, truth doesn't have to feel good. It isn't determined by popular consensus. You know, maybe you get a, a commentary and it says, "Oh, well, you know, he, he didn't really mean this." You know, or or there's always grace. You know, you can just do whatever. And there's always grace. Truth is what corresponds with reality. And Jesus's challenge here is a tough reality for me to swallow. It's probably a tough reality for you to swallow too if you have family that you love. But the point, the point that Jesus is making is actually the same point that I'm up here trying to make today, and that is that nothing, nothing will satisfy you like Jesus will. There is nothing. You can try to run away from your problems, but if you're not running toward Jesus, you will not find contentment. There is nothing in all of the world that can satisfy you like Jesus. Nothing deserves our hearts more than Jesus does. Nothing can bring us joy like Jesus does. Nothing can bring us a sense of purpose like Jesus does. Nothing satisfies us like Jesus does. Nothing in all of creation. Nothing. And so Jesus goes on to tell the people, To count the cost of following him. That's where he goes with this. he, He is basically demonstrating that there is an enormous cost of following him, denying our very nature and surrendering the thrones of our hearts completely to him, and not just making him a top priority, but forsaking all of our other gods, kicking them all out, and choosing him. You cannot be an idolater and a disciple. You cannot be an idolater and a disciple because that's serving two gods. You know, down the road a little in, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus explains to us that nobody can serve two masters because eventually it, it'll come out, it'll, it'll become apparent that you love one and you hate the other one. And so we must choose one and only one. God will not settle for second place in your life. He will not settle for second for second place. Jesus will not accept being your second to top priority. If we love anything more than we love Jesus, we are not a disciple. We can fool ourselves into thinking that we're a disciple, but we're not fooling Jesus. He looks at the heart. We can be what John John Wesley referred to as an almost Christian, someone who, quote, knows that God's word is true, but won't commit himself to following it. He may live a good, moral, even religious life, and even go beyond others with regards to human compassion. His humanitarian spirit causes him to give to others that which he has need of. He may hate all unrighteousness and sin in society to the point of protesting and petitioning against it, but does not recognize sin in his own life. In this, he has a form of godliness, but reveals that he does not have the power thereof. And he quotes, he's quoting 2 Timothy three five there. And that is a reality, friends. That is a harsh reality. The road is narrow that leads to life, and few will find it. Few will find it. And man, be, being an almost Christian... That's pretty easy. You know? uh, it, it's so much easier than committing our lives completely to, to, to being faithful to Jesus. It's so much easier to be an almost Christian. It, it, you know, it keeps us faithful and true to ourselves and, and to the traditions and the idols that we hold dear. It even makes us look good and moral in the eyes of other people. What more could you ask for? Heaven. Heaven. It makes us look good in the eyes of others, but this is the type of thing that keeps people out of heaven. And Jesus said that on the day of judgment, many would say to him, Lord, Lord, did we, did we not do this and that in your name? You know, we, we did these amazing things in your name, Jesus. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of evil, uh, workers of evil. So the question is not, do you know Jesus? That's not the question. The question is, does Jesus know you? Does Jesus know you? Because he doesn't say, uh, you, you never knew me, get away from me. He says, I never knew you. You shall have no other gods in my presence. And Jesus goes on to say this. Luke chapter 14, verses 33 to 35. He says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. Gotta love that. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does it mean for salt to lose its taste? I'll just give you the nutshell answer. It's another way of Jesus saying, you love something more than you love me. That's what it means for salt to become unsalty. And look at what he says. Unsalty salt is absolutely useless to him. It can't even go into a pile of manure. That's a vivid illustration for you of loving something. The value, the worth of loving something other, beyond Jesus. Man, that's harsh. It's it's, it's a hard pill for us to swallow. And so Joshua's challenge for us is the same thing that Jesus is challenging us with. Two words. You choose. You choose. You choose between me and money. You choose between me and your family. Choose between me and your traditions. Choose between me and your desire for control. Choose between me and your career. Choose between me and fill in the blank. What do you struggle with? Put it in there. Choose between Jesus and every other God. So I have to ask, which gods are battling for your heart today? Which gods are going to be battling for your heart tomorrow? Which gods have been battling for your heart all week this week? Now, uh, if I could have the ushers come forward, I have something for you guys. Uh, Because I I really want to make sure that we have a a heart-to-heart with Jesus today. Um, Any ushers? (laughs) Uh, I really want to make sure that we have a heart-to-heart with Jesus today. And so what I have is a series of questions that really only you can answer. Let me read these to you. What things tend to cause you to feel disappointed? What things do you tend to complain about most frequently? Where do you make the greatest financial sacrifices? What do you turn to when you're upset, distressed, hurting, or anxious? What are some things that tend to make you feel infuriated? And what are some things you'd rather do than come to church to worship? Let me have you guys hand these out. See, these questions are going to, you know, take a couple minutes to, to look at them. Um, it, it's going to help us understand, uh, that what, it's going to help us identify what we're looking to to give us what only Jesus has the power and authority to give. Take your time. We're going to take a few minutes, play some music, and be honest about this. This is just between you and Jesus. And if you're honest, you'll identify the gods that you either serve or struggle with. And please, please, I am begging you. I am begging you to come to Jesus. And if you need to repent and cast your idols away, I am begging you to do that. Today. To choose. Today. Make a choice to love Jesus more than anything else in your life. If we need more, we can make copies in the back room. Just let us know. Make a choice to love Jesus above anything else in your life and make that choice today. Choose today to stop taking that proverbial cough syrup that we've all been taking and turn to the real solution to our problems. The real solution to our problems is making a choice today, right now, to love and worship Jesus and to cast away our false gods. And in a few minutes, I'll just close this with a word of prayer. Lord, I pray that You would just take the, the seat of our hearts right now. Take the throne of our hearts right now. Your word says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so my prayer today, Lord, my prayer is that you would search and know our hearts. Holy Spirit, show us our false gods. Convict our conscience to forsake them, to hate them. Let us not deceive ourselves by believing in the empty promises that they offer. Lead us in your ways, and we cast down our idols before you, Lord Jesus. My desire is not my my desire is not that we would love those things, but that we would love you above anything else, that we would choose to serve and worship you and you alone. May our greatest desire not be for more money or more respect or control or power or whatever our gods may be, Lord, but may our greatest desire may simply be just to have more of you. And Lord, for the things that we're struggling with, the things that we're struggling to, to let go of, just take them away from us. If, if it's material stuff, so what? It's just—it's just stuff. But you, Lord Jesus, you are Lord. And so my prayer, Lord, is that you would teach us to love you above anything else that the world has to offer. May we glorify you in our lives, through our hands and turn you. Through. of teaching timeless more truths in these I truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.